Welcome, my lords, to the Well-Earned Comforts Podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Seth. Thank you for joining us on the Walls of Isengard as we explore the many works of Tolkien and discuss life. We're glad to have you as part of our fellowship, as there's no telling where we'll be swept off to. We are so excited. This is a really quick turnaround to be podcasting again just one week away. Uh, It's hard to get our schedules in alignment with Seth and his work and my work and Seth's kid and and my foster kid and just finding time alone in solitude where we can nerd out together and have our little therapy session. (laughs) But yeah, let's do some uh, babbling Mike Butterbur for a little bit. Seth, what's going on? Not much. uh, Just spent the last little bit trying to when you texted me and saying you were getting on i was rearranging the gym in the basement trying to make it a little more space efficient because i want to build a little play area in the basement for evelyn so that it's like a safe spot for her to wander around while we're in the gym uh, i love that working out yeah and so i was moving stuff around and amanda put her down for a nap like an hour and a half ago and came down and was like, Hey, you're making a lot of noise. I just put Evelyn down. Can you, can you not? And so I was like, <laughs> oh man, I wanted to be done with this, but that's why I was a little bit late. So I appreciate the the patience on that. But I think, the, oh, yeah, absolutely. I think the, the gym is going to come together. I think it'll be a little bit more of an efficient layout for it. So I'm excited for that. No, but, that's super cool. That way you can just work out and just look over and make sure she's good to go rather than having to schedule it during naps or other things like that. I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. My my goal is to build <laughs> as weird as it sounds like a little playpen um, type of thing where she's kind of confined to a space, but she's got all her toys and, you know, some little storage areas for stuff that might interest her because uh, we want her to watch us uh, working out. You know, I mean, growing yeah. up, I want it to I want her to see it. I want her to realize that working out and training and taking care of your body is something you do at a baseline. It's not something that you should pat yourself on the back for. It's something you do Mm. as part of a healthy life. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. I think, I think putting a play area in there, you know, associate play with working out and hopefully watching us over the years, it'll, it'll work for, I don't know. We'll see though. Hmm. No, that's really good. I love that idea. You said so that she can like run around and play a little bit. Is she, she moving around already? Not yet. Um, she's she's still relatively uh, sedentary <laughs> other than <laughs> she flips over and then she'll flip back. But she doesn't she hasn't started crawling or anything. Yeah. yet. So she has started sitting up on her own. You have to put her in the position and then she can hold it for a little while until out of nowhere. She just kind of smiles and falls over and waits for <laughs> you to catch her. She just she knows that you're going to catch her and she's not going to get hurt. So she just kind of smiles. And I think she does it on purpose to be fair. I think she Probably. Really enjoys it. It's a kid's favorite game is trust fall, random trust. Oh, fall. I'll, I'll play this game with her where I have her on my knee at the table and then I'll just yell like, Oh no. And I just <laughs> drop her and then catch her, you know, five or six inches from the floor. And then yeah. I bring her up and her face is just glowing. It's, it's adorable. Oh, that's really cool. I love that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. She seems to have kind of turned a corner just this last, like, not yet, maybe two days, yesterday, two days ago, where she is just smiling and not laughing quite yet. She's making like a puff puff sound. So she's not really laughing yet, but she's just, she seems to have turned a corner where everything is just making her smile with, you know, her little uh, teeth that have just barely started to break through. So it's, it's fun. It's fun. It's super cute. Yeah, what about you guys? How's how's everything settling in with your foster kid and everything 
with that. Yeah, it's going pretty well. The thing right now is just trying to find a rhythm. You know, that's one thing that we had really, really well, obviously, when it was just Ariel and I and we could work out when we wanted to. We could, you know, just chill when we wanted to go out when we wanted to. And so now just trying to figure out how to do that. I mean, he's 15. He's definitely independent enough that he can stay by himself um, for an extended period of time. But we also don't want him to have to do that. And we don't want to put him in a position to where you know, he might be tempted to do something that he shouldn't do or, you know, something like that. So as we're still building trust, you know, trying to figure out how to how to love on him well and also just also make life not boring for him either. I don't want him to just feel like he has to be up here playing video games all day. Like that's all he can do. So we're trying to just look into ways to be creative and stuff like that while also trying to figure out a good routine for us and having enough time for one another and working out and making sure we're, we're taking care of ourselves and obviously working and all that. So it's, it's just been kind of a process. I know this last week was just, I mean, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't like, I don't know, there wasn't something that I was like, wow, this was really cool about this last week. It was just kind of, you know, going through the motions and and we did it. <laughs> we got through kind the of week. A, kind of a feeler week where you're just trying to find your new normal. Exactly. Yeah, there's nothing nothing exciting, nothing terrible or anything like that. Just kind of meh. That's fair enough. I will I will say I have one gripe about weather. It is the middle of January in Michigan and it's not, there's no snow on the ground and it's like 35 degrees and it's raining almost every night. <laughs> I do not get it. It is pissing me off. Like just you were promised snow. I just give me the snow. Give it to me white. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> no, I totally get you. I mean, obviously we would, wouldn't expect snow here in Kentucky, but it has been raining just about every night. And today was 60 degrees and humid and rainy and, and it was like thundering. And we actually, the, the other night we had a crazy thunderstorm happen like at 2 a.m. And I was, I, we were sleeping and it goes off and Ariel squeezes me and I just, I freak out. Like, cause I heard it. It sounded like either a car, a car crash or a bomb or something like that. So I just jump out of bed and like, <laughs> what, what's going on? What's, what's, what's wrong? <laughs> She's like, it's thunder. I was like, oh, okay. And man, we couldn't go to sleep for the next hour because it was just that loud. Like every, 10 minutes or so and so it was it was pretty nuts but yeah definitely not like the winners we're used to i i know and even last year up here in michigan like it's around this time it snowed well a couple weeks prior to this time it snowed and that snow stayed until it melted in in like the end of march so i'm just i'm waiting for the snow it's weird having thunderstorms and rain in the middle of january like that's not that's not a january thing yeah, we even got a tornado warning this morning for like southern Kentucky. It was Jeez. like there was circling in the clouds and stuff. Nothing touched down to my knowledge, but yeah, it was. It's just like what what's going on? This is so different than what we're used to. But yeah, that is the updates on our lives as it has been a week. So I, I always talk. I mean, I don't know if people actually listen to us babble or if they just skip through us. But I mean, you can skip through it if you want to. Like Seth and I. Like, we don't really do a whole lot of talking before we podcast. So this really is our time just to be like, hey, what's going on? Like, I because I care about you. I want to know what's going on in your life. And so, um, but yeah, hopefully you enjoy us babbling. I, I hope you do. Be clever at times. Very rarely, I suppose. But <laughs> I don't know that we're the most interesting people. But I mean, hey, you never know. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, let's jump into a more interesting segment, perhaps Riddles in the Dark. 
obviously we grab one piece of dialogue or characters from the three-part Lord of the Rings book that we have and see if we can figure out how to stump the other person on uh, who's talking, what's the context, and uh, hopefully even a chapter if we can get that far as well. Seth has been completely blowing me out of the water recently. Like I think he's gotten the last four or five right, and I've gotten with hints, maybe two. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I know these books. I know them. they're near and dear to my heart. <laughs> well, me too. Me too. I, I mean, I don't know. I guess I maybe haven't listened to them as much as you have. I've, I've read them probably more than you have. But oh, have you, have you actually like just actually read all the way through them? I've read The Hobbit, The Fellowship, and half of The Two Towers. Gotcha. But I've I listened to them probably two to three times a year. Yeah, yeah. I just so. need to bite the bullet and get audible or something and and do that but anyway enough babbling as we said we were going to stop that <laughs> I, I, I was thinking too i was like i wonder if people actually listen to the segment if other people are good at this game too it's just like a random mm-hmm. game i mean there was one night months back where i handed the book to amanda and i got three in a row and i was like this is fun keep going and she was like no this is <laughs> you're you're depressing me put the book away um and so Nothing i'm like sexier i, than I wonder that, if huh? yeah i wonder if other people you know get these correct or actually enjoy it i don't know if you if you do let yeah. us know yeah yeah let us know if you're keep keep track of your score if you're listening and we'll compare it to our score and we can make a, a competition out of it but uh, i will go first i'm gonna go find a piece of dialogue here okay this one should be fun it's i maybe shouldn't give you too many clues but nothing we've already said before or anywhere close to it do I want it? Do I want it? He said, as if puzzled, but his arms were trembling. What would I give for it? What do you mean? We mean, he said, choosing his words very carefully, that is no good groping in the dark. Come on. I probably shouldn't have gotten that. I shouldn't have said that last part. I I feel like I knew what it was before that. This is, uh, now I'm drawing a blank on the orc's name, but this is, it's not, oh. What's his name? I forget that orc's name. It's when he's going after um, Merry and Pippin looking for the ring. Yes, you are correct. Uh, his or name well, is looking for, yeah, what they had. Yeah, and Pippin picks up on, on his guesses and then eggs him on. Um, yeah. So that's in the two towers. It's when they're, you know, captured by the Urukai on their way to Isengard. But that's what literally is name? the name of the chapter is the Urukai. <laughs> the, so. Oh, the Urukai. Oh, sweet. But his ah, name. That's a hard one. Grishnak. Uh, yeah. yeah, there it is. I kept there thinking is. Gorbag, and I'm like, no, that's not Gorbag. Uh, Grishnak. Grishnak. Actually, no, it is two towers <laughs> Gorbag is. He's in this. No, no, it's, it's Return of the King. Never mind. Forget yeah, it. Return of the King. Very <laughs> good. Well done. Another point to Seth. <laughs> uh, this one evening. actually, I think, is going to be pretty challenging. So if you get this, I'm going to be impressed. Wow. Well, um, okay. All right. It's just where I randomly open the book up to. Okay? Uh, I think I think you're looking up the most difficult. <laughs> I maybe <laughs> just suck at this. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's a possibility. But this one, I'll give you a pass if you don't get it. All right. It will take days to clear the road like this, he said. What's to be done? Have those eyes come back? That last sentence is what's going to give it away. Mm-hmm. I think I assume those eyes are hinting at Gollum. Is my guess, and you're 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 not helping. I hate how you just like you do this, like yeah, well, maybe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, no, but you're 
Nazgul, maybe? No. Okay, not Nazgul. Hmm. Um, have the eyes come back? Not to be seen, said Blank, but I feel they are looking at me, or thinking about me, or making some other plan, perhaps. Hmm. This next sentence, you'll get it. Do you want another hint? I mean, I have some guesses, but I'm sure they'll be wrong, so yeah, please. You want to try? Well, not to be seen. I'm going to guess it's Frodo is in the conversation. And part of me wants to say, but you said it wasn't the Nazgul. I was saying part of me wants to say like Farmer Maggot when they're hanging out with him, but it's not that. And then part of me wants to go Mines of Moria, maybe. But I'm no. Okay. What's (laughs) what's the next line? All right. All right. This next line, you should be able to get it. If this light were lowered, or if it failed, they would come again quickly. Oh. Speaking about the eyes. <laughs> I, I don't understand. I'm, like, I'm completely lost right now. Tripped in the end, said Sam bitterly, and his anger rising above the weariness and despair. Nat's in a net. May the curse of Faramir bite Gollum and bite him quick. Is this in, I guess, Shelob's lair, then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's I when was they're, thinking. It's, yeah. Okay. There. <laughs> I told you it's a, that's a really hard one. But no, I, I should have got it. That was like dumb. have those <laughs> eyes come back. That's kind of the giveaway that they're referencing spider not eyes. Not just two eyes. It's eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get. I mean, I, I mean, two eyes is eyes. It's still plural. There's two of well, them. I know, but spider eyes are there. Lots of eyes too. <laughs> not just two. <laughs> Never mind. Whatever. Well done. That's a good try. That's a good try though. Mm, darn. Well, on to more merrier tidings. <laughs> we have some tidings from the Fellowship. Uh, we have a Tolkien story from our good cousin Caleb, who actually is a composer of music, and um, he has reached out to us and said he wants to do a podcast on the music of Lord of the Rings. Howard Shore specifically, I'm sure, is what he's talking about for the the soundtrack of the movies. Um, so that might happen in the future. Stay tuned to that. But he gives us his wonderful Tolkien story that I don't, I don't know if Seth has read yet. So I'll go ahead and read this to him. But he says, hey, guys, my Tolkien story. My dad introduced me to the works of Tolkien and Peter Jackson from a very young age when he purchased the extended edition of The Lord of the Rings. Good. There's no other way to watch them. He would show me different clips from the film, making sure to keep them PG. I was continually fascinated by Tolkien's world. Eventually, as I was old enough to watch the film in their entirety and became absolutely obsessed with both the films and the books. I had read The Lord of the Rings, The Appendices, The Hobbit, and The Silmarillion by the age of 14. That's Perhaps impressive. the most, very impressive, especially The Silmarillion. Yep. <laughs> I remember yep. going to their house and like him reading it in the morning when we'd wake up, because he'd always wake up before us when we spent the night there. He'd, yeah. he'd just be reading yeah. it. I'm like, what are you, that's crazy, man. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, perhaps the most important influence, however, was the music from the films. I grew up in a musical family and was writing music and playing piano at the age of seven. However, it was the work of Howard Shore in The Lord of the Rings, which at the age of 12, made me decide to pursue music composition in college and as a career. In many ways, I do not know what my life would look like had I not seen The Lord of the Rings film or heard the music. It could have been very different. I continue to enjoy Tolkien's works to this day, and I'm continually excited to discover new insights in his stories and mythologies. Thank you, Caleb. That is absolutely wonderful. I think Seth and I can both agree that what our lives would look like had we not experienced Tolkien. It's such a small thing to think that a fantasy story like this could actually shape our lives so much, but it really has. 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of crazy that he was writing music at the age of seven. <laughs> yeah, I remember going over to their house and stuff, and they would always, I mean, whether it was piano or guitar or whatever, singing, pretty much everybody in that family is just musically gifted. And I don't know, it'll be interesting once we eventually get him on to hear him speak about Howard Shore and how it impacted him, because to me, I don't have a musical bone in my body. I, I love the music. I love listening to it but I don't understand it. And Caleb is somebody that actually understands music. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we've had some short conversations about it, but you, I mean, similarly, the only thing a musical I can do is whistle. Like I can't play any instruments or anything like that. And so I'm always, I'm always amazed to have those kind of conversations with him and the insights that he brings. And it's always, it was always funny growing up. Like we were the, we were the sports people and they were the music yep. people. I mean, yep. don't get me wrong. The Linville's are completely outdoors kids uh, and they are super fit. They do all kinds of climbing and biking and skiing. And I mean, but like the traditional sports, you know, that was, that was us, the hand-eye coordination. And then, yeah, the, the music and creativity definitely on the Linville side of things. Yeah, for sure. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Caleb. That was interesting. I, I look forward to the time where we get to actually talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we, we'd love to hear if, if you're listening and you haven't sent anything in yet, please do. Please just send a quick little email to whackpodcast at, g- whack at gmail.com. We'd love to hear uh, how you got into Tolkien and what influence it has on your life. Like Caleb said, this is his life would be a lot different had he not experienced Tolkien and, and the works that has begun. Well, Again, thank you, Caleb, for sending that in. Let's jump into our next section, the meat and potatoes of the podcast. We are jumping into chapter five of our story, well, Tolkien's story, rather, Children of Huron. We're kind of picking up the story a little bit uh, down the road after we left off. So last last chapter, Turin traveled from Dor Loman, uh, the in Hithlum, which is kind of, what is that, like northwest of Doriath. And he was sent to Doriath by his mother because she was scared of what would happen to him. And she wanted him to be raised by the elves and be well taken care of. Um, So at this point in time, Turin is all alone. uh, Aside from uh, he's the only man, I should say. He's a, a man amongst elves all by himself in the land of Doriath, being the fosterling of King Thingle. Um. So at this point in time, uh, Turin was in the care of Melian, who, if you remember Melian the Maya, she is married to Thingle, but he really didn't see her much. He spent a lot of time uh, in the woods and just enjoyed exploring and going around. At this point, he's still, uh, you know, a young child around the age of nine. And there was an elf maiden named Nelas. Is that how you would say it? Nelas? Nelas? Nelas, probably. Nelas. Yeah. There's actually hey, in better. in my book. There's like on the first couple pages. There's like a pronunciation guide. Um, <laughs> so I've been trying to use that, but it's. I mean, just I've like all of other Tolkien's works, it's not. It's still confusing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, well, either way, Nalas and Turin spent a lot of time together as Turin was growing up, and she taught him a lot about uh, creatures of the woods and how to navigate the woods, and she also taught him Sindarin, which was the elven language that was spoken in Doriath. And Turin actually ended up growing up very swiftly. And for a while he was happy. And as Tolkien put it, eventually he fell again under shadow. Um, And as Turin spent more time in the halls of Minigrath and turned his focuses towards the deeds of men. Uh, So he was really 
kind of concerned about, you know, kind of like we've discussed before that the elves, they're not really worried. They have long lives. They're going to wait for things to come to them. Whereas men are the movers of middle earth or of Beleriand, and they're the ones that actually have to get things done. Yeah. And I think it's interesting how Tolkien says like the, the shadow kind of fell upon him again. And it just goes to show like you can be distracted from your crap only so long, you know, like he understands like he was old enough to remember what happened to him, why he had to leave the, the, the cry from his, his mom. Like he, he remembers all that and sure he was distracted by all the wonderful things. It's kind of like going on vacation for a little bit. Like it's like, okay, cool. I'm in a new place, you know, I'm being taken care of, well-fed, all this stuff, no worries as it would seem. And yet he's still remembering his past and, you know, worried about his family and like that, that cloud just, just covers him. And I, I totally get that. I mean, I see that with, with our foster kid, like, you know, we, we've given him everything he needs and there's still just kind of a, I don't know, a sadness about him that obviously just comes along with his circumstances. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's, I mean, in a sense, Turin is running from his doom or his fate, which isn't him running necessarily. He was ordered to do so by his mom, but Eventually, mm-hmm. you you have to turn and face it, and I think even at a young age, Turin is starting to starting to realize that and and notice it. Yeah, um, definitely. And so Nailas was actually interesting. She only would be in the woods. She enjoyed spending time with Turin, and actually, as weirdly as it sounds, kind of I don't know. It, it almost seemed like she kind of had a thing for him as you read the chapter, even though she's you know an older elf maiden at this point. Yeah, she's um, a weird character. Like, it, there's, I, I was at first when I was reading this, I was like, why is Tolkien even putting this person in there? Because it doesn't seem like, I mean, she comes back and now I see why it, it makes a little bit more sense. But, but yeah, she's just kind of this uh, very strange character, but she, she really did love Turin and she played with him, which is just weird. And then he, they played together a bunch and then she watched over him. Yeah, exactly. And, as she as Turin grew older, she refused to go into Minigroth. She did not like the the you know the caves and the halls and the bright lights and the busyness. She just liked to be secluded in the woods alone. So whenever Turin would go out, she would watch him, but she would watch him from a distance, which was different from when Turin was younger, and she would actually play with him and interact. Now she just kind of watched him from afar. Uh, and during this time, when Turin would go to Minigroth, he actually ended up spending nine years in the halls of Minigroth, and he grew tall in stature, uh, surpassing all the elves. So this is kind of interesting, you know, the body differences between the elves and the men. Um, but Turin was definitely a like a specimen of a man, and he was growing into that. And he spent time gaining wisdom and listening to the valiant stories of old, which you can only imagine kind of inflamed his desire to go be valiant for for his own people. Yeah. Um, But during this time, he also received tidings from Morwen. So Morwen would send messengers and Thingle would send messengers and back and forth. And so he he got to, you know, hear that his mom was still alive. She was still doing okay. His new sister, Neonor, was born and she was growing in beauty as this little baby. Uh, so I think that helped comfort him, but he still was having, you know, this this uh, shadow coming over him. Mm. And during this time, Beleg, the strongbow that kind of found him and his companions in the in the forest before Thingle decided to bring him in, uh, he would come to Minigroth and he would seek to earn out and he would take him into the woods and teach him archery and craftsmanship and the sword, which he his favorite was the sword because. 
he didn't have um he wasn't subtle he didn't have good i don't know that it, i wouldn't say fine motor skill but he was often he didn't know his own strength and he did, what didn't have patience and so the woodcrafting and things of art and craft he just he wasn't he didn't have an aptitude for it yeah he wasn't smooth he, he bull in a china shop kind of guy <laughs> <laughs> i like that yeah that's that's a good way of putting it he was he was a bull in a china shop uh and this is kind of interesting just because i feel like i you know, growing up, mom told me that all the time, like, hey, Seth, be careful. You don't know how strong you are. You don't realize how strong you are, Seth. Be careful. And she would she would tell me that when I was, you know, wrestling with you or Steven. Um, and she would know that, you know, you're about to <laughs> get hurt if I didn't tone it back a little bit. Or, you know, I was shooting a mini hockey ball around the room and she's like, I have really breakable, precious moments on the shelves. Please don't. You don't know how strong you are. You will knock them down. And unfortunately, that that did happen. Happened a lot. Yeah. Um, but kind of as as Tolkien describes, if you remember the curse of Morgoth towards Turin, that like nothing would go correctly in his life, that even if he did something properly, it would work out for evil in the end. Mm. Um, and so Tolkien said, in other matters, also, it seemed that fortune was unfriendly to him. So often that he, what he designed went awry and what he desired, he did not gain. Um, and he also had a horrible, horrible time making friends because he, he was kind of a solemn guy. He was a Debbie Downer. He just didn't really speak much and didn't laugh much. And that shadow was just kind of weighing on him all the days of his youth. Yeah, definitely. But there was a lot of people who, I mean, <clears throat> the people who really knew him, the people who like spent time with him, like Beleg, the Strongbow, like Mablong, who we're going to talk about, they loved him. Like they truly loved him for who he was but he's kind of the guy that you have to spend time with in order to see that to to get past the stern exterior and and just kind of get to know um because he's a very complex character very very complex guy <clears throat> but there was one person in particular the, that he did not get along with and it's not really of his of his own doing at all really this is a guy who's just looking for trouble his name is uh, cyros i think is how you say it s-a-e-r-o-s cyros and this dude, he, he was just a straight up fool. Like he was super cocky and he didn't care for those he deemed that were less than himself. Like if he thought somebody was worth less than himself, he would put them down. He'd tease them. He'd just look down on them. Um, but he was also a friend to another jerk who we've spent a little bit of time talking about, Daron. If you remember, he's the minstrel that hated Baron and was in love with Luthien. And so it's no shocker that these two blockheads would get along and, and enjoy each other's company and counsel. And so uh, both of them hated the race of men. They didn't understand. I mean, why why would we bring in this unhappy race is what they called them, like an unhappy race, which, I mean, makes sense when you look at Turin's composure and stuff. But they they just dis have disdain for men, but specifically the kingsmen of, of Baron because of all the drama that had happened with Baron and Luthien and uh, everything that went down there, even though if you read the story as we have already done, it was mainly Thingol's stubbornness that brought on most of the craziness that happened. And Melian even said that that was going to be the case. Like it's because of you Thingol that this all is going to unfold. And yet Daron and, and Saros are both just blaming Baron's Kingsmen for this. And because of that, they just don't take kindly to Turin at all. They think he's not worthy to be in their halls of Menegroth. And so whenever Cyrus would see Turin alone, he wouldn't do it in public, but in, whenever he caught him alone, he would 
speak in arrogance and disdain for him, egging him on kind of like a middle school bully would do. Like I see that a lot and on Wednesday nights with our students, you know, we have one kid who, you know, just poking and prodding at another kid. And I'm like, dude, just stop. Like, you're not that cool. <laughs> that's what I tell him. Like, yeah. you're not that much, like there, there's no cool level here. And and I think that's kind of how Cyrus feels is like, he's feels like he's so much cooler than, than uh, Turin here. And he's, he's trying to get him to react. And yet Turin, he, I mean, he grew weary of him. He didn't like him for sure. But he returned ill word with silence, as Tolkien says, which I love. I think that's a great lesson for a lot of us as we see there's just such a reactive tendency nowadays, whether it be online or in person, for people just to react to ill words with other ill words, you know, fight fire with fire. And for a long time, Turin just was like, yeah, whatever, you're not worth it. And wouldn't even say anything, walk away, you know. But uh, for some reason, somehow, Cyrus was actually considered great among the people of Doriath and he was a he was a counselor to the king and so he was well respected and so you kind of think you know in in public he maybe talks to Turin and, and speaks highly of him to all the other people but then you know behind closed doors he he hates him and and tries to egg him on but uh, Turin's silence whenever he would just kind of turn around and walk off displeased Saros as much as as much as his words and so he he was wanting a reaction. He wanted Turin to freak out so that he could point blame and be like, see, this guy's, this guy's messed up. He needs to get out of here. We need to kick him out. Yeah, which I think it's interesting that he's a counselor of the king, which if you think back to the story of Baron and Luthien that, that we did a podcast, well, three, I think it was three episodes on. Yeah, uh, three. Go back and listen to that. But Thingle was very much of the same mind towards men. Um, mm-hmm. If you remember the conversation he had with Baron, calling him all these different names and insulting Baron like crazy. Yep. And so it's like, OK, Saros is, you know, he's a counselor to the king. And I wonder if, you know, he had that position back when, you know, he got it prior to Thingol's change of heart. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of kept it because he is deemed a wise counselor, even though they may not agree with like his prejudices at this point. I don't know. Yeah, no, that I mean, that could make perfect sense. Obviously, Thingol's had a, a huge change of heart through the acts of Baron, and and it was so near and dear to him, too, because that was his daughter, you know, that everything went down with. And I guess Saros was probably still on that prejudice side of like, look at what he did. He brought he brought a, a raging wolf to our <laughs> lands who was trying to, like, devour people. This is not good. We should not have men like this in our in our city. But yeah. Yep. Um, so we'll kind of transition to you know, the rest of Turin's life, uh, this chapter kind of skips around, you know, you don't really have just the rest of his life. Well, is it the rest of his life in Doriath? I yeah, should say, yeah. um, it just kind of skips around. You don't, it's like, okay, he's nine and now he's 17 and now he's, 20. you know, like there aren't distinct mm-hmm. timelines really. Um, so Tolkien says that when Turin was about 17, he really became to get, uh, that shadow was really, really starting to weigh on him. And then grief was forefront of his mind because all the messengers that Thingol was sending, that Morwen was sending, uh, had just stopped. And the the roads became incredibly dangerous for any messengers to try to cross between Doriath and Dor Loman. And Thingol basically was like, I've sent out a bunch of messengers. They never returned. It's just not worth it anymore. I'm not going to keep sending, you know, my people out to die. Uh, and so this really weighed on Turin and he was worried for his mother Morwen and he was worried about his sister, uh, Neonor, who he had still not met yet. Um, and he brooded about the downfall of the house of Hador and 
you know, the people that they were and the power that they once had. And he's the heir to this house. And, and he, here he is in exile in an elven kingdom. Um, and at this point he decided to approach Thingol and Melian. And when it's interesting, when Thingol looked upon him, Tolkien says that in place of his of his fosterling, a man and a stranger, tall, dark haired, looking at him with deep eyes, white face, stern and proud. So it seems to me like when Turin walked in that room, his mind was made up about something already. And he came in and it, Thingle was just caught off guard by like the change that had come over Turin in this brief moment. Yeah. And I wonder too, how present he had been in his upbringing. Cause I mean, we, like you said, it's a very condensed timeline of, you know, he's nine now he's 17 now he's whatever, but we didn't really hear any interaction with Thingle at all. Like, it sounds like he spent most of his time maybe with Melian cause Melian saw him a little bit and a lot with Nelas, you know, more, more brought up by the, by females you know and i i guess that that was kind of tolkien's reality too growing up was was mainly just brought up by a lot of females and then obviously the the boarding school that he was at but yeah yeah that's interesting i i don't know i that might be part of it too is thingle really had talked to him for a while and then out of nowhere you know he's picturing this little boy that he rescued that he sat upon his knee and all of a sudden he's this 17 year old he's grown not quite to his full stature but he's real close you know and he's he's a presence now six foot um, three jacked out of his mind <laughs> probably uh and so the conversation just carries on and thingle basically says all right what why are you here what do you need uh why why are you here to visit and turin says i need mail a sword and a shield to match my stature and he also said, and I would like to reclaim that which is already mine, the Dragon Helm of Dorlone, um, which all these things indicate that he's he's wanting Great to march war. out to yeah. war. Yeah. And in learning of this desire to go after his kin and everything, Thingle, uh, or I'm sorry, Purin, as he's discussing this, he requests that Thingle give him some soldiers to go with him because he, I, I can only assume, but I assume... I, I'm guessing he wants to go up to Dorlome and rescue Morwen and Neonor and bring him back or, you know, make war against the Easterlings that are, you know, you know, ravaging his people. Um, mm -hmm. And so he's requesting, you know, a company of men to do that or elves to do that with. And Thingle basically says, I'm sorry, uh, I'll give you these things. You're a man. You can choose what to do with them, but I still rule my own people and I won't send them out. Yeah. Um, Which is fair. Then, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I mean, yeah, I especially because Thingle has seen, you know, I mean, Turin is 17 years old at this point. Thingle is one of the oldest elves. Yeah. I I mean, I think he awoke at Cuivian and like with the firstborn. I mean, mm -hmm. he is ancient and he has seen how things go, you know, so he, in his own wisdom, he's like, it's not it's not going to work. I'm not going to risk my own people. Sure. And again, Melian has just stores of wisdom that nobody listens to. Um, but she basically says, Hey, you can, you can leave through the girdle of Melian because you were brought in. So you can leave. It won't hinder you. Um, because you're welcomed here first. And, and Thingle looks at her and he's like, I, I understand what you want to do. I 
get where you're coming from, but if I were to recommend it, I would say go to the North Marches with the elves that are fighting up there against the orcs and make trial of your strength and your prowess. Basically saying, like, don't go off on your own yet. Your body isn't a full stature. You're not at full strength, and you haven't fought yet. Like, you mm -hmm. need to gain experience before trying this. This displeases, you know, Turin a bit because he really wants to, he wants to go on his own mission. Um, yeah, he's a very impatient person. Yeah, exactly. He wants to go do his own thing. And Thingol is basically saying, just go try this out first. And then he kind of looks at him and he says, there's little hope that one man alone can do more against the Dark Lord than to aid the Elf Lords in their defense as long as that may last. Which kind of makes you think like Thingol's just accepted that they're fighting a losing battle. Like hmm. we're on the defensive. We can't go on the offensive. And if you think this is right after, um, the near Nyeth Arnoid yet, right? So right. this is right after they, the elves and men tried to go on the offensive and Thingol's basically like, we're fighting a losing battle now. We're never going to be able to, to push forward again. Um, <laughs> and it's funny because at this point, Turin brings up Baron and he, who, who is akin to him. And he's like, well, Baron did. And <laughs> he brings up Baron, but he doesn't mention Luthien. And Melian actually steps in because Turin basically says, yeah, well, Baron did. And L Melian steps in and goes, and Luthien. I love that. I love that. When I read that, I just chuckled because, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a total jock move to just be like, oh, yeah, well, my my kin has done this. And she's like, but yeah, you know, if you forgot, she... How many times did Luthien have to revive Baron? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Baron was dead at least four times probably in this quest. And yeah, so she's like, come on, you, you can't just be like, you can't call the Baron card and, and assume that you're, you're going to be fine because it was not just Baron. And I love how yeah. Tolkien just explains like, like, no, Luthien was that powerful. Luthien was that necessary. Just kind of evening the playing field a little bit. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and she continues, she goes Baron and Luthien. But you are overbold to speak such things to the father of Luthien. Not so high is your destiny, I think, Turin, son of Morwen. Though greatness is in you, and your fate is twined with that of the elven folk, for good or for ill, beware of yourself, lest it be ill. Which, when you hear that, it's like, first of all, it's kind of a slap in the face <laughs> to Turin, because he's probably imagining, you know, deeds of greatness, of rescuing his, his family, and doing harm to Morgoth, and all these different things and and Melian's like yeah I you have greatness in you but it's not to that level one thing I noticed too when she's saying this she says not so high as your destiny and yet everywhere else Tolkien talks about Turin's future as his doom I mean we'll get to that here in a little bit but I, I don't know I think that's interesting how even though she has such foresight she maybe doesn't understand what the entirety of outcome of, of Turin yeah, that's actually really interesting. I wonder if that's a like a a mishap in Tolkien's writing. You know, maybe he didn't make that clear, or maybe it was intentional to show that you know they still don't understand everything that's going to happen to Turin. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. That's a very interesting observation. I don't know. Um, anyways, like nobody listens to Melian, and if <laughs> if people just did, they life would be so much easier for elves and men alike i mean yes melian just she is so wise in every way and people just ignore her counsels and it, <laughs> it just gets old um and then she 
ends by referring to herself in like the third person and she says remember the words of melian it it will be for your good fear both the heat and the cold of your heart and strive for patience if you can the heat and the cold of your heart and strive for patience and if you think about turin as as a character that we've learned a little bit about his personality he is very hot and cold already and he is incredibly impatient yeah so at this point turin kind of he's like all right all right maybe you guys are right so he decides to go join the north marches the elves on the north march uh the north marches to do battle against the orcs and kind of understand you know his own strengths and his limits and everything uh and he was a good friend of beleg who was the you know the craftiest woodsman of the age and it's said that beleg was the only person that could match and even exceed turin in his deeds of valor against the orcs yeah he i mean he proved himself a mighty warrior he he I don't know if he could have done all the things he said he was going to do by himself, but he did prove that he had a lot of skill and a lot of gifting when it came to, you know, swordsmanship and and just courage and bravery. Whether it be bravery or stupidity, we'll decide later on. But uh, after three years, he, he comes back to Menegroth unlooked for. Like, he didn't tell people he was coming back, but he needed rest and his armor was damaged, so he needed some repairs. And so he was like, yeah, I'll just go back to, to Menegroth. But just so happened Thingol and Melian were away in the Greenwood on a vacation. Now, Seth made a point to say that this Greenwood isn't capitalized, so this isn't the Greenwood of Greenwood of Mirkwood that turns into Mirkwood. It's because that would be really, really far away from uh Dori from Doriath and Berland. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I just when I was reading that, I was like, they were in the Greenwood, and normally you hear Greenwood the Great, and that's in reference to Mirkwood. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, that's so far away that I, and it's not capitalized. I really don't think that's what Tolkien's referencing, but I don't know what he was referencing. Yeah. It could just be like, maybe the Greenwood is just a very pretty place to rest and hang out and enjoy a little romantic dinners. And yeah, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> uh, anyway, when Turin did come back, he didn't care about what he looked like. He, he actually looked like crap <laughs> and he just kind of barges in, walks in. How do you think about the elves? You think of how fair they are and how, I assume clean they are. I, I I love the extended version of the Hobbit. It's not necessarily in the books, but like just the interaction with the dwarves and the elves when they come to Rivendell and just how grimy they are. And and you got the elves playing the harp in front of them and eating like the green foods, and the dwarves are just like going crazy. And in the extended version, I don't know if you've seen it, but they actually like there's a there's a shot of all the dwarves naked in the fountain like yeah like messing around like obviously you don't see anything other than uh, maybe a, a dwarf tush or something like that but <laughs> i was just like yeah that that's kind of what i picture when when tour walks in just com- completely gruff doesn't care what he looks like his hair is unkept he's probably smelly he's probably super sweaty you know um but but he walks in and he's like i'm hungry like most men are and so he takes a seat to eat and uh he actually takes Saros's seat unintentionally because Saros was late to the meal for whatever reason. And, and he didn't know he just grabbed a seat cause he wanted to eat. And, uh, but Saros believed that Turin had done this on purpose and out of pride. And, and Tolkien says that in his anger, he was not lessened to find that Turin was not rebuked by those who sat there, but was welcomed as one worthy to sit among them. So he's, 
sitting among these, you know, again, high elves and people of valor, people of wisdom, and they're okay with him sitting the way he looks and the way he smells. Yeah, I think that in this situation, all these other elves are, they know who Turin is, they respect him, they want to hear about his deeds, they want to hear stories, they want to hear what's going on. He's been gone for three years. And so they're like, yeah, fine, you can sit there, but this is Saurus's seat. And when he gets here late, if you think about how prejudiced he is against Turin already, he's just going to take it personally right off the bat. And then the fact that his his friends and fellow elves aren't, you know, like scoffing at Turin for showing up to the meal with his hair unkempt, like that's really bothering him that he seems to be like the only one that's irritated by it. Yeah. Do you remember when we used to have family dinners, like how we all had our spots? Dad, oh, yeah. was, at, dad was at the top, mom would be at the left, then Sarah to her left, you would be at like the bottom of the table and me and Steven had the bench all the time. But yeah. I remember like, I'd try to beat you to dinner. I'd get in one of your seats and be like, Nope, get out. Kick. Like you just kicked <laughs> me out of the seat. And yeah, that's very true. So I guess, yeah, I guess people do get mad if you cop their seat like that. So <laughs> Saros is like, what the heck man? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but he, he feigned polite speech at this point with Turin just to, you know, whatever, but it was clear he was mocking him. And eventually Turin grew weary of Sauros's speech and, uh, the light and the laughter, the halls, again, he's just got this shadow upon him and he was away for a long time and he's missing his mom. And so he just kind of frowned, you know, he wasn't pointing it at Saros necessarily. It wasn't intentional to be like, gosh, Saros, just shut up. But he just like, you know, the, the weight of his, his circumstances kind of leaned on him and, and he just looked in Sauros's direction. I imagine kind of glossy eyed and just frowned at him. Uh, but Sauros of course took this personally and he said out loud, he said, Doubtless, man of Hithlum, you came in haste to this table and may be excused of your ragged cloak, but there's no need to leave your head untended as thick as a thicket of brambles. And to this, Turin made no reply, but turned his eyes to Saros, and in them were, as Tolkien says, a glint in their darkness. So he just kind of looks at him like, really, dude, are you are you going to go there? This is where we're going. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, all right, uh, try me, you know, mess around and find out is what those eyes are saying. And and Saros didn't heed this warning, but in, he continued. And, and this is where, you know, the straw, the camel breaks the back of, of Turin. You know, this is where all these, uh, the poking and the prodding has finally kind of come to a culmination when Saros says, well, if the men of Hithlum are so wild and fell, of what sort of the women of the land? Do they run like the deer clad only in their hair, assuming like, you know, they're naked, they're not running around without clothes on and... And Turin was like, all right, that's it. And he takes his, what Tolkien says is a drinking vessel. So I'm wondering like maybe a ram's horn or something and chucks <laughs> it at Sauros's face. And yeah. it just like, just blows <laughs> him backwards. And, and he falls back, just got hit in the face with, with a, a drinking vessel. It's amazing. And Turin grew, drew his sword, but Mablong was sitting at the table and he's like, oh, 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 hold on. Like, guys, 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 calm down. Saron gets up, Saros gets up and he shouts back in the hall uh, and, and he says, wood woes. And he throws out a bunch of other things at, at Turin. He's really, really upset. And rightfully so. He just got smacked in the face with a drinking vessel. Um, but this uh, Turin just kind of like, fine. He's like, fine, whatever. And he just releases himself from Mablong, shoves him off and just leaves. He takes off. And Mablong calls out to Saros and he tells him like, Dude, this was your fault. You were egging him on. Like, why? Why would you do something like that? I don't. I think that your broken face is your just reward for what you were saying. That 
you deserve this broken face. And so Sauron, Saros was throwing a fit, and he actually even threatens to to kill Turin if he drew a sword on him again outside the halls of the king. And as Seth and I have talked about, that was probably going too far. You know, when we when we talk about the elves and drawing their swords in their yeah. kingdoms against one yeah. another, like how serious of an offense that is. Um, but regardless, like Saros has had it, he's he's upset. Uh, but Mablong, he's got a lot of wisdom. He's got a, lo- a lot of wisdom, and he follows this up with saying, um, like, if, if you guys were to fight each other, if either of you had been slain, it would be an evil deed. More fit for Angband, where Morgoth is kept, than in Doriath, and more evil will come of it. Indeed, I feel that some shadow of the north has reached out to touch us tonight. So take heed, Saros, lest you do the will of Morgoth in your pride. You know, he's he's saying, like, there's more to more at work than we see here. Like there's an influence on Doriath right now, and and just be careful because you're gonna bring in a lot more evil than we need, than we should have in here. Yeah, at this, I mean, he's basically like, okay, there's something going on that isn't normal, and he's warning Saros, like, hey, take a step back. Let's not let's not allow this evil to come even closer because something is going on that we don't understand. And what they don't know is it's, it's just the fact that Turin's there and everything he does. Uh, it almost is like in Narnia and, you know, I forget which one it is, but the kid that everything he touched turns to gold. Yeah. And initially he's all excited about it. And then he realizes what a curse it really is. It's almost like that mm-hmm. where no matter what Turin tries to do, even if it's, with the best intentions, it turns to, you know, become an issue later on. Yeah, yeah, darkness just follows him wherever he goes. He's got that that curse of Morgoth on him that just follows him. Exactly. Um, so the next day, Turin, he's got his, his mail fixed up. He's got his sword, you know, the notches, it's reforged, you know, whatever. He's ready to go back to, back to do battle. And so he gets his get up on and starts leaving and he's in the woods. And Saros actually ambushes him. He comes screaming at him and ready to fight, sword drawn, shield on his arm, coming after Turin. Um, and thankfully, Turin, you know, was trained in the woods by Beleg. He's got great situational awareness. He's never caught unawares. And he hears Saros coming. He flips around and, you know, his sword's drawn and he's ready. And he, he starts screaming and yells Morwin now your mocker shall pay for his scorn and he's like oh yeah let's do yeah. this I can only imagine that Turin's like this has been a lifetime of frustration that I'm about to take out on this idiot. oh yeah oh yeah and you got to keep in mind that Cyros was going to kill the foster the fosterling of the king like what was his end goal here mm-hmm. was it really just his pride was hurt to a point where he was willing to murder the fosterling of the king like what happens if he succeeds and thingle comes back right you know what i mean like what's his end game i don't i don't understand it but i guess people and men especially do do things out of pride that just make no rational sense yeah absolutely um <laughs> so they actually fight for a while and turin takes care of him pretty easily he gives him a good cut on the sword arm and wounds him. And then he steps on Saros's sword. And so at this point, it's clear Turin's won. He could kill him if he wanted to. Uh, but actually, Turin decides, no, I'm, I'm going to humiliate him a little bit instead. Like, I could just kill you, but I'm going to humiliate you. This is and where so, it gets explicit, man. <laughs> it's funny because he actually says, there is a long race before you and clothes will be a hindrance. Hair must suffice. <laughs> 
So if you think about the insult that he made towards Morwen about like, oh, do the women just run around in only their hair? And Turin's like, well, you're about to run around in only your hair now. Yep. <laughs> and so he cuts the clothes off of Seros and he's like, all right, run, take off. I can all <laughs> kind of, it makes me think of like growing up when you or Steven would do something and I'd start chasing you around. Like, uh, oh, you yeah. know that if you stop, I'm going to get you. And I'm not really trying to get you, but I want you to think I am. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so Saros is just running butt naked through the woods screaming <laughs> out like oh he's getting me and it's funny because Tolkien says like the tip of Turin's sword was not far behind like just to you know give him a little prod whenever he started to slow down at all um, but these <laughs> these cries brought people from all over the woods like what the heck is going on and Mablung is one of them and it's funny because to or Tolkien actually says that only the swiftest runners could keep up with them. Um, so even though there were a lot of people that would come in and try to check in on what was happening, only a few of them could keep up. And Mablung was actually one of them. And and he sees what's going on and he yells out to Turin and he says, "Hold, hold! This is orc work in the woods." Basically, like I knew something was coming. I warned Saros of this last night. Like, let's stop this here, Turin. Stop. And Turin actually was getting enjoyment out of this. And he replies, orc work there was, but this is only orc play. And it's interesting with that, that statement, because I think Turin is saying orc work there was in reference to being ambushed. Being ambushed yeah. Yeah. But Mablung didn't see that. Nobody saw that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just kind of an interesting thing as we move forward with this little part of the story. But he's like, orc, orc, or orc work there was, orc play this is and he's just like i'm having fun i'm gonna keep and doing this and he's still admitting to just the ridiculousness of what he's doing like yeah that's what i do love too that yeah like orcs he's fully are, aware yeah he's like i shouldn't be doing this but you know what i've had it with this guy yeah we're playing or we're playing like orcs which is obviously opposite of how an elf would play or a man yeah um so as as turin was chasing him there was this this stream that fed the Isgalduin, which is the largest, the main river that goes right through the heart of Doriath. And at the there was like this deep cleft, and at the bottom of this cleft there was rocks. And Saros, I can only imagine, actually thinks Turin is trying to kill him. He's he thinks he's actually running for his life, whereas in Turin's mind, he's just humiliating the crap out of this guy. Yeah. Yeah. And so in his fear. Uh, Saros decides to try to make a leap that is just a crazy long leap. And he not tries. Renowned. It's not a capital no, L. <laughs> there's no capital L. There's nothing renowned about it. Um, and right as he got to the other side, he lost his footing and fell backwards down this deep cleft onto these rocks within the stream. And he, he died. And at this point, uh, Turin thinks to himself and he thinks, unhappy fool. From here, I would have let him walk back to Menigroth, but now he has laid a guilt upon me undeserved. Which, is it undeserved? Mm. I don't know. But at the same time, he wasn't intending to kill him. I don't know. It's kind that's, of... That's a really deep thought to have, like, because he's just like, oh, crap, like, this guy just died, and now that's going to be on me? Like, I'm going to have to, like, feel like that was partially my fault? Like, come on, man. Like, he's still even blaming Sorrows for... for his own actions. His own actions, Yeah. Yeah, he struggles to take responsibility. I think. <laughs> yeah, I, and that is definitely a, a theme moving forward. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And so he turned around and I can only imagine he's like, all right, well, the fun's over. Sheathes his sword, turns around and Mablung and a few others are, are standing there. And Mablung was like, all right, you need to come back to Menegroth. We need to sit down in front of Thingol. Maybe if you're lucky, Thingol will, will pardon you for this unjust killing. Like, come back with us. You need to figure it out. And he looked at Mablung and Turin said, I, I did not wish his death, but I do not mourn it. And he's like, yeah, I understand. Like, but he's dead. We need to, we need to figure this out. And Turin looks Mablung in the eyes. And this is Mablung the hunter. I mean, mm-hmm. Mablung and Beleg were both part of the hunting party that took out Karkaroth. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you remember. So Mablung is, is a very renowned warrior himself. And Turin looks him right in the eyes and each one of his companions that are, that were able to catch up. And he's like, you have two choices. You can let me go in peace or you can attempt to kill me because there's not enough of you to take me alive. Mm-hmm. And Mablung, again, he's, he has wisdom and he just kind of shakes his head. I can imagine he goes, well, one death is enough. Fair free. Basically saying this, this is what you wanted from the beginning to be sent away on your own to do your own thing. And he's like, one death is enough. We don't need to have any more fair free. Yeah. And here's where we, that's kind of like the last we see of touring of the chapter, but yeah, obviously there's an, dead elf in Doriath and people want to know what happened. And so uh, Thingol and Melian, they come back from their little vacation and Thingol was really distressed. I mean, this was a, one of his counselors that, uh, that died and, and that his, his, his foster son Turin had renounced his, his fostership, like his sonship. And so he's like, what's, what just happened? I wasn't gone that long. Was I like, what, yeah. what happened while I was gone? And, and so he calls together all the witnesses of what had happened. And he's like, tell me what you guys, tell me what you saw. Cause I want to understand what's going on. And so Mablung, uh, he was a good friend of Turin. He spoke to the King and he, he told him what happened, but Thingol could tell he was speaking as a witness. Sure. But as somebody who was a friend of Turin. And so maybe more favorably on Turin's side than, than he should have. And, and, so he calls him out on it. He goes, are you just speaking to like, are you a credible witness? Pretty much is what he's asking. Right. And I love Mablong's response. It's again, full of wisdom. He says, a friend to Turin I was, but I have loved truth more and longer. Obviously he's very old. He's been around a long time and he's loved truth more and longer. So, you know, he's pretty much saying like, I'm telling the truth. I do love Turin. He's my friend, but truth is more important to me. Yeah. And when I read that, it really kind of, I try not to get political on this podcast at all, but it really is a reflection to everybody in the political landscape of, yeah, we all have our biases. We all want, you know, whatever our party wants or whatever. It's obviously more nuanced than that. But at the end of the day, you shouldn't seek out what your, you know, right versus left thinks. You should Mm -hmm. seek out the truth. What is the truth? And then make your decision. We can disagree on you know, methods and all that, but we should all be able to agree on the truth, which is, I think, where this world is going horribly, horribly wrong right now is people are not only receiving different truths from media, from statistics, like you can lie about anything. And you have two people who have good intentions that in their mind, they both believe the truth. And in reality, there's only one truth. And I think that's why, you know, having like a a moral framework in your life is so important. 
is that you can fall back on that moral framework and be like, okay, in this situation, what is the truth? And then once you have that truth, we can discuss, you know, the political stuff, you know, but everybody should be able to agree on the truth. Yeah. And, and maybe not on, on the political side of things, but even just a theme that I've seen with my students is, you know, when we go on trips or, you know, something happens, kid does something stupid, but I'm told about it. Like there's this whole thing like, Oh, no snitching. Like you can't snitch on yeah. one another. It's like, it's not snitching. It's the, the truth is more important. Like I'm going to love that kid no matter what. I'm going to give grace for that kid no matter what, you know, I'm not going to like, you know, do something drastic. I mean, if I have to, maybe, but you know, more than anything, I just want to know the truth. And all these kids are like, no, nah, I'm not snitching on, on my friend. He's, he's my friend. I'm I'm loyal. And it's like, yes, you should be a loyal friend, but sometimes that means the best thing, the most loving thing you can do is be truthful about what happened. And that's exactly what Mablong is saying. You know, he's saying, I, I love, I love Turin, but here's also what happened. Here's the truth. And Saros was asking for it. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, just an interesting, interesting dialogue um, um, from there. But after hearing all this, Thingle, he, he took to his own counsel. So he's starting to think to himself. And he was upset with Saros for all that happened in the hall and, and placing the blame on him. But um, the acts of the next day, he said, the shaming of Saros and the hounding him of him to death were wrongs greater than the offense. So he's thinking like, yeah, Saros shouldn't have egged him on. But at the same time, like what Turin was doing to him was definitely more like that was more than the payment that Saros needed to pay. Uh, and so he pronounced his judgment and banished Turin until he returned to sue for pardon at the feet of the king. So pretty much like you, you're banished until you come back and beg to me and, and try to regain my, my friendship. Yeah. And he, at one point he's thinking to himself, he's like, this is an ungrateful foster son. And in truth, a man too proud for his state, which if you kind of break that down, an ungrateful foster son, Thingol probably feels betrayed by Turin to some extent. Mm. Like I raised him from a nine-year-old boy. I gave him a safe home. I taught him wisdom and all these different things. And he goes and does this. And then yeah. he's also like, he's too proud for his state. Meaning like he is, after all, he's not a king of the elves. He's not, you know, an elf lord. He's not, he is just a manch. The house of Hador. Yeah, he is. But his pride is still dictating his actions further than, you know, he should be able to. Right. And that's a completely true statement, too. I mean, that's that's a good diagnosis of Turin himself. What we see here, thankfully, Bella comes, he he busts into the room, maybe does one of those Aragorn open the door swing, <laughs> you know, sexy hair flow. <laughs> but he he comes into the room and he he's like, hey, King, hold on. Uh, he asks, can can your judgment be withheld? until he had spoken because even though he was late coming he had some information uh, uh, regarding the case uh, if you will and so Thingol's like sure yeah no problem um but uh, remember up to this point no one saw the initial action so nobody saw the ambush that's not been talked about at all um so at this point uh, nobody saw the ambush and the actions. And so Thingol's interested to hear what this new news could bring. And so Bella brings in uh, the maiden who I said would come back later, Nelas. Uh, she comes back in, which again, she hates the halls of Minigroth. So she was reluctant to even come in here. And when she does come in, she's kind of uh, starstruck. And she's like, wow, I'm really talking to the king. And she has this moment and the king's like, hey, get, get to the get to the goods. Like, what's the point here? Like, come on. Yeah. She's kind of like stuttering over words like, oh, she's just kind of in shock. But then finally she calms down and she recounts everything that she she had seen. 
And so she told him about the ambush because, again, she had been watching over Turin in secret. So that was also really important. Um, but Thingol uh, reminded her to speak carefully in the Court of Doom. And so she replied, So Belig has told me, and only for that I have dared to come here, so that Turin shall not be ill-judged. He is valiant, but he is merciful. They thought they fought, excuse me, Lord, these two, until Turin had bereft Sauros of both shield and sword. But then he did not slay him. Therefore, I do not believe that he willed his death in the end. If Sauros were put to shame, it is shame that he had earned. Again, saying, like, I don't think Turin meant to kill him. I saw what happened. They were fighting. He gave him mercy. And yeah. again, mercy is receiving is not receiving what you deserve, right? So he deserved, if Sauros was trying to kill him, like, that was his payment. He deserved to, Turin to just turn around and kill him. So Thingol replies, hey, hold on, hold on. The judgment is mine. He's, you know, again, the king. The judgment's mine. But what you've said will govern it. And then he questioned her closely. He he talked to her and, and kind of, again, trying to sift out the details of everything because she is the only eyewitness. And again, she knew and loved Turin as well. So can she really be trusted? So she interrogates him. Her He interrogates her a little bit more. Yeah, I think I like how in this instance, Thingol is actually deemed rather wise. I mean, he's normally kind of rash and emotionally driven it seems mm -hmm. if you think about the stories of baron and luthien and other times he gets to make decisions um he's kind of just driven by by emotion and in this in this situation i think he's like there's so much emotion going on based on my foster son that i brought in he's like i need to really understand all the pieces of this puzzle yeah for sure for sure and so eventually he he comes to the point where he's going to pardon Turin. And so he sends out messengers to seek out Turin to deliver this message. And so that all happens. Night comes, next day happens, and Beleg comes back to Thingol and Melian. He he's like, Hey, I can probably find Turin. I'm really close friends with him. I'm the obviously the most skilled woodsman that you I taught have. him everything he knows. <laughs> <laughs> I taught him everything I know he knows. I probably know where he's gonna be. Can I go out and find him? And and surprisingly, maybe this request delighted Thingol. And he's like, yeah, absolutely, man. Wh whatever you need, uh, I'll give you. Whatever you need to, to go on this quest and find Turin, absolutely. And Belag the Strongbow makes a request. And this request is what really shapes the rest of the story, as we'll see. It's a very fateful request that he, I don't think at the time in making this, knew the implications that it had. But he asks for a sword. A great sword named uh, Anglakel. Is that how you say it? Anglakel. Anglakel. Yeah, sorry. Anglakel. Yep, yeah. Yep. Um, but this, this was a sword of great fame, and it was forged by the dark elf Aeol. Without going too much into the backstory of this sword, uh, Aeol, the dark elf, he, <laughs> he snatched up Turgon. Like I said, I'm trying not to go too deep into this. Um, he snatched up Turgon, if you remember from Gondolin. Turgon is the king of Gondolin. He snatched up his sister, who wanted to leave Gondolin and travel and see some stuff. He snatched her up, forced her to marry him. And then after a while, they had a kid, and she ran away. And he was really renowned for his sword making, and he made these two swords. One his son Magling took, and then this one that he got. And as Eorl went searching for his wife, he ended up in Doriath, and Thingol was like, hey, I we i don't like you i don't like you here 
Um, but if you give me your sword as like penance, kind of, I'll let you mm -hmm. stay in this area and kind of camp out while you're trying to find where out where she went. So that's how Thingle came about the sword. He never used it. It was given to him um, by the, the craftsman, Errol, Errol, however you say it. Yeah, uh, that's that's interesting. I was wondering how he had that if he, you know, if it was forged by somebody else. But um yeah, the name Anglicale was because of the iron that was used to forge it had fallen from heaven as a blazing star. So, again, this this sword is is the real deal. You know, iron forged from a blazing star. And Seth made a note here. If I mean, most people who have been into Lord of the Rings probably know the Aragon series inheritance. And so Seth made made the note that it reminds him of the bright steel that we used to forge the rider swords and in, in the inheritance cycle, which uh, cycle. I, I I would agree. I, I didn't make that connection, but yeah. Yeah, I just a quick aside. I wonder if if Christopher Paulini had read this when he went over that I was like, oh, that's a that's a really good way to have a unique type of iron to make these swords with because it's very similar. I don't know if he did or not, but it's I, I, I bet know. he did. He, I bet he did. He he took a lot of uh, stuff from Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's world uh, to create. It's just his own. such a small, obscure thing that he made a, like a very prominent part yeah. of his own story. So, sure. I mean, if he did, I don't really have issue with it. I think he took a an idea and expanded on yeah. it in his own way, in a creative way. Personally. Sure. Yeah, and I I love I love the the Aragon series. I think it's a very very fun book. I reread it again recently, like as an adult, and it's like, yeah, it's definitely more of like a teen. At least the first one, you know, is because yeah. I mean, he was what seventeen when he wrote it. Which, dude, the guy is jacked now. Holy crap! I oh, saw yeah. that on your Twitter. I was like, <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah. this is the dude that like <laughs> is a super nerd that wrote these books. I was like, wow. Uh, but anyway, yeah, he's stacked. <laughs> far side here, uh, but. As Thingol turned the hilt of the sword to Belag, Melian looked at the blade, and again, we got some foresight, some great wisdom from Melian. She goes, hey, there's malice in this sword. Which you think about Tolkien's works, you think about like the inanimate objects that aren't inanimate. <laughs> the yeah, ring, exactly. swords, yep. things that just have some power to them that's unexplainable, that is evil. And that's what she's sensing here. She says the heart of the Smith still dwells in it in the same sense of the ring, you know, the, the heart of the Sauron still dwelt in the ring. And that heart was dark. It will not love the hand that it serves. Neither will abide with you long. So she's saying like, this sword is not going to do you very well because it belongs to somebody else. And it knows that, which is just kind of a creepy thought. I don't think I'd want to have a sword on me that, knew that I was not its master and was going to do something to make sure that, you know, it, did, it didn't work that way. But yeah, I, I, when I was reading that warning, I read it a few times and I was trying to think what is going through Beleg's mind as the sword is being handed to him. And she says this because neither will it abide with you long. That could be interpreted in a couple of different ways. Like, oh, somebody's going to steal it or it's going to break or like whatever. And I assume that's probably or... what Beleg thought or potentially what happens later happens and you know it's just that warning that she gives him he, in his own mind he's probably like ah it's just gonna break or get stolen or something like that and it's just like yeah. unfortunately no <laughs> yeah and a part of him was probably like well but this is an awesome sword like i need this yeah. I, I want this and but as we'll as we'll get to the sword does have a little bit of a mind of its own um unfortunately <laughs> yep it sure does 
Yeah, well, that was probably one of the longer chapters we've done so far, but any final thoughts on chapter five? Not much. I know I keep saying like this is where the story starts to take off, and <laughs> I feel like a lot happened in this chapter, and it did. I mean, with all, all the crap with Saros and Turin, you know, chasing him around. I love that. Um, but now, starting in this next chapter, Turin, you know, finds a group to to kind of lead and start doing what he wants to do for the first time in his life. Um, he's free of you know his mother. He's free of the elves. It's him, and he's gonna live life the way he wants to, and. And we'll see how that turns out for him, starting with uh, this group of guys that he comes upon. Yeah, those outlaws. Uh, but until then, we can't skip our segment of Gondor calling for aid. So we're breaking into the halls of Metaseld in Rohan, and we're shouting, Gondor calls for aid. Will you, Rohan, answer? So if you enjoy the podcast, please light at your own beacon by sharing it with fellow friends and fans. Also, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you'd like to share your own Tolkien story with us, please do that as well. Something similar to Caleb's. doesn't have to be long, just a paragraph or even a couple sentences of what Tolkien has done in your life. Uh, we'll share it here on the podcast just like we did with Caleb's. So email those to me at weckpodcast at gmail.com. But as Seth mentioned, we're jumping into Chapter 6 of Children Purin next time, where we'll see him and his band of outlaws. But until then, we thank you for joining us for some well-earned comforts. And we bid you a very fond farewell.